From the movie house to your widescreen at home, Radio 111's Going to the Cinema and the streaming services on Flicks and Picks with Brian Mendoza. So grab your popcorn and beverage of choice and step into our screening room for our weekly forum on film. Now, here's Brian. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the screening room for our th- second episode back on I um, I was going to say I have radio. We have to get used to our name change, Radio 111. Oh, it it's been fun. I had fun last week doing that first episode, so I'm glad to be back for a second episode. As they say, another episode, another blessing. Who actually says that? I don't think anyone has ever said that. I coined that. So if you ever have an episode of a YouTube series, a television series, and you use that term, remember me. Don't forget me. Uh, well, it, it's been, you know, last week we talked about Dear Evan Hansen, and I, you know, wasn't a big fan of that movie. But we have three movies that I have vastly different opinions on each one for different reasons, because we have three different kinds of movies to come out this week. We have... Venom, Let There Be Carnage, The Addams Family 2, and we also have the um, Sopranos prequel movie, The Many Saints of New York. Uh, not New York, New York, or whatever they pronounce it. <laughs> I always forget how to pronounce that, uh, that city in New Jersey, but, you know, I'm sure it's a nice city, made famous by the fact that, you know, The Sopranos. But it's been an interesting, it's going to be like that for a while because it's going to be, I've noticed that because last year they had to delay all these movies. So a lot of movies that are kind of um, different from each other from different studios will be um, competing next to each other. So if you want, so there's going to be a couple different genres every single week until the end of the year. Because I know that, for example, Halloween Kills comes out pretty much right next to another kind of film. And it just depends on how like, it's going to be one of those things where the audiences are going to be divided in terms of like where they're going to go because like I think that something like Venom will appeal obviously to a different audience than something like the Sopranos prequel or or the Adams Family movies which typically appeal to families so you know you have different options and I and I think that's actually pretty cool like I actually think that that's a really neat thing a kind of a neat circumstance in how like films kind of pile on top of each other or they competed against each other so i don't know like i i don't have a problem with that i think that that's actually kind of cool but you'll notice something like that and you'll be like hey what's going on why is lamb and no time to die competing against each other next week which is you know or why is halloween kills the last duel why are those two competing against each other at the box office you know and because of that it's i can imagine it's a little bit more difficult to you know, pick a movie if you want to see one kind of film or in your move for another. So it just depends. I think, I think in some cases, the obvious box office winner is going to be the one that's a little bit bigger budgeted, like Venom, Let There Be Carnage, which is the first movie we're going to talk about, obviously is going to be the big winner at the box office. So you'll notice that trend where two different kinds of films are competing each at each other. Uh, uh, with each other at the box office, which is better than like another superhero movie competing against another superhero movie, which, you know, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's just, you know, it's nice to have some variety at the box office because of all the delays last year. But let's go ahead and go over to Venom. Let there be carnage. I reviewed the first movie pretty early on on Flicks and Picks back in I back when we used to call ourselves iHub Radio. The only time I can use that 
I can say that name instead of saying iHub Radio to introduce the show. I think that I said on that show that Venom kind of reminds me of a burrito where I think it's really bad for you and it's like really excessive and fat and excessive and like grease, but you know, you just really enjoy it. That's how I remember the first Venom movie. It's, you know, a movie that's about this guy named Eddie Brock who encounters an alien symbiote um, that's named Venom. And he and Venom has his own personality. And at first, you know, Venom wants to cause destruction and chaos. But now he's wanting to be a hero in this sequel, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, which you might be wondering, why is that? What's up with the name? Well, Let There Be Carnage is actually a reference to another superhero comic book character who is really evil named Carnage. Now, in this movie, Venom goes over to a Venom has been interviewing this guy named Cletus Cassidy, who is a serial killer who has killed a bunch of people. And it's actually one of his final chance of trying to be a famous reporter again. And it's also Cletus Cassidy's chance to try to talk to the world or whatever, you know, it's one of the, it's a kind of, it's weird why Cletus Cassidy wants to be, you know, so closely tied with Eddie Brock. That part isn't fully explained, but you know, I'll let the movie slide a little bit, but for the most part, one during one terrible visit, Cletus Cassidy bites uh, Eddie Brock's hand, and the blood, which has symbi- a part of the symbiote in it, obviously, attaches itself to Cletus Cassidy, and he becomes the symbiote monster alien creature Carnage, who is in Marvel Comics, if you don't know, one of the more sinister and more evil and just brutal characters to ever premiere in a Spider-Man comic and well just Venom comics because like Venom is a character from the Spider-Man comics but in this because this is owned by Sony you know they don't get to be with Spider-Man like the Marvel characters so you'll probably so for the most part for now for now we're just gonna have Venom interact in his own world with um, Carnage and all these characters and pretty much Carnage goes out and tries to find his girlfriend and tries to uh, get married to her. But at the same time, he also wants to kill Eddie Brock. And he also wants to, like, just cause general chaos. And it's up to Eddie to defeat Carnage with Venom. But ultimately, Venom and Eddie are having some issues because the fact is that Venom is an alien that wants to eat brains but obviously you can't do that so eddie's like you can't go around eating people's brains and so there's that conflict so it's one of those superhero movies where the vil- where the hero has a conflict in the midst of a really evil villain's plan kind of like a spider-man 2 but not as good or as introspective of course but i gotta say that again it's it's the same principle it's a burrito type of movie. I call it like a burrito type of movie. In this case, it's like cake where you really enjoy yourself while eating it, but you know it's not really good for you to be eating a lot of it. And Venom Let There Be Carnage is a lot of fun. Like, it's a lot of fun. I had a good time at the movie theater. I was laughing. Everyone I went to the movie theater with was having a really good time with it. I think that it's one of those movies that if you want something really pleasant and happy, well, not I wouldn't say it's a happy movie, but something that makes you happy for like an hour and a half. It's a pretty fun movie. I think it's actually a really fun movie where you could actually sit back and relax and feel like you can kind of escape into this guy's problem, you know? And I think that it's just one of those things where like it either makes you laugh or it doesn't because the mood this time is a little bit more, um, 
comedic because the first movie you know it tried a little bit to be a little darker but now that they realize that the reason why so many people liked that first movie is quite frankly the fact that um you know it, it had a lot of good comedic scenes in it and scenes that made people laugh like the final scene made a lot of people unintentionally laugh because he basically <laughs> describes to this guy what he's going to do when he eats him so there's that but i think this time around they ramped up the comedy so if you really like the comedy of the first movie this one really really tries to sell it to you and i think that's really great and i think that i think it was a smart decision you know i think that once you start having like symbiotes and uh, alien creatures like that then you know it's i think it's a really good idea to try to be a little bit more self-aware and comedic i like the fact that the film still tries to be sincere that it doesn't try at all to be like super ahead of itself it doesn't try to outsmart itself which is actually a really good thing but i would also say that when it comes to this movie in terms of like storyline i think that you know quite frankly it's about the same in terms of quality i don't think the story is necessarily worse or better i do think that the I do think if I have to say one thing that I don't really care for the fact that the final act is a very big CGI fest where I kind of feel like I wanted Carnage to have a little bit more personality. I don't know, because like when I when I read the comic, Carnage is actually like a really psychotic, very over the top character. And I kind of felt that Woody Harrelson, you know, in the actual Carnage CGI um, performance, that he wasn't really all that great in it like i not great i would say he was not fully allowed to be as insane as he wants to be but i think that woody harrelson's really great as cletus cassidy and i even think he has a good voice for carnage it kind of it kind of you know doesn't it's because i'm used to certain kinds of voices for carnage because i've seen like the spider-man animated series and i've played a video game where like the characters a certain way so it's kind of like you kind of have to like divorce your idea of carnage from being like an over-the-top serial killer who literally eats children and like full-on technicolor because like those comics were graphic so it's you have to kind of reduce them down just a tiny bit because you have to get that pg-13 rating you know and the one thing I will say, though, is that I think the acting's pretty fun. I think that I wouldn't say necessarily great acting. I think Tom Hardy is just he just has a good time with the role. I know that some people think that he isn't suited for comedy or that his voice is too grovelly in this movie, which, you know, to be honest with you, I know he sounds different, but I was convinced, you know, I didn't think that he sounded like he sounded natural to me i don't know like maybe i'm just bad at picking up accents but i just thought that he sounded natural to me to the point that i would hear his real voice and i'm like okay that doesn't sound real <laughs> but is but his voice on here sounds fine to me i don't know why people were so critical of it the acting's really good the um the directing by andy circus like i think that he you know i think he's a good director i think he's a good director i just think that if anything I wish he was a little bit more willing to push the envelope a bit in terms of like, you know, um, graphic violence, because I think that a character like, um, I think like a character like Venom and Carnage needs a little bit more violence because the fact is that like when he eats people, I think that it needs to be clearer like how horrifying it is. And I don't think that it quite hits the same. I think it's awkwardly cut a lot. So, like, there'll be moments where, like, a character's head gets eaten off, and you're not quite sure if it did, or you just gave him a kiss. It's kind of one of those weird editing decisions, but who knows. 
And it's one of those movies, too, where I would say it's kind of like a 90s superhero movie where, like, you know, typical shenanigans. And then finally at the end, one big final battle and a couple of things that allude to a sequel. And there you go. I think that that's that. And then I would say if there's one scene that really, really changes the movie in a fundamentally important way it's that end credit scene but i can't say anything because it's a spoiler but you have to see it and i think that if you are a person who has followed certain trends in marvel movies uh or the marvel cinematic universe or like the sony marvel movies you'll get what what i mean like if you've seen it by now i think it's a great great scene the post credit scene i think it honestly makes this movie worth the price of admission ad- alone so you know if you want to really have a good time with you know fun a- actors really just selling it you know just really going over the top like woody harrelson then you know this is going to be a fun time for you if you actually watch it i do think the post credit scenes make it like it it, it changes everything and so like for me it's like okay this is actually worth watching and this might actually be an important film to watch going forward for certain things i'm not going to be too specific because again you have to go see the movie but let's just say that that end credit scene is very important for for the for future reference and we'll see where things go from here on out but hey stay tuned we're going to talk about the sopranos prequel film the many saints of new york So stay tuned. He's been touched by an angel or two. You know, Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, maybe even Gene Shalit. Here is Brian Mendoza, Talking Cinema, on Radio 111's Flicks and Picks. So finally, The Sopranos has come back to the big screen, and for a while now, we've been kind of, you know, we, we've been hearing rumors that there would be a sequel or a prequel, and so for a while now, the history of The Sopranos on the big screen has been sort of like an interesting history to me because for a while now they've that finale that original sopranos finale has always been the subject of debate even today people still having their opinion about it i remember when that finale came out and that everyone really really hated it because they really wanted a certain kind of finale and so they got that and i'm kind of one of those people that i never had a problem with the Sopranos finale I guess because for me like I just never really felt that I never really felt that it was anything worse than a lot of other finales I think that in his that the history books will show you that clearly it it was misunderstood because when I went back and watched it I rewatched the finale before I saw this and I thought you know what it actually holds up pretty well it does what it needed to do it left some things open-ended and i think the show's smart enough for people to like to sort of get it because like the show itself you know people forget that it was pretty surreal sometimes you know the sopranos was this show basically about a mafia family it was basically a family drama about mobster about a italian american mobster named tony soprano who has a really hard time like balancing his family life and being able to like be the leader of a of a criminal organization and 
the and it's and this is explored through the fact that he goes to therapy and he has these therapy sessions and it's one of those things where it's like a really how do i put it this way it's a really unique type of television series because the fact is that it is a mafia uh, tv series that really does go out of its way to be like more introspective a little bit more how do i say like a little bit more deconstructionist of the genre like it actually like sort of mocks the idea that the mob always knows how to handle the family situation well or that they really always put their family first because like the godfather bless it i love the godfather it's a great movie but you know a lot of movies have come out about the mafia after godfather that tried to do that sort of like family comes first in the game sort of thing and i think they've never been really as successful as um the godfather or its sequels well its first sequel so like something like the sopranos like changed the game in that sense because it took its mob boss and sort of had him go to therapy and it was like really fascinating to see him like talk about his challenges trying to be this like big brutal masculinized like uh, mob boss but trying to also be a dad you know and the show itself has aged pretty well to the point that i think that I think a lot of things have actually improved the show. Like, I think a lot of people now see that Tony Soprano, you know, he wasn't always right. And that his wife was probably, you know, probably right about a lot of things. And I and I appreciate that. So now that we have a prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, I actually was really surprised that they even made it in the first place. Because I was like, I thought they would never make this. Like, you know, I never thought and they did. They were going to. And... And I got to say, I actually had a good time with it. It was a good movie. You might be asking what it's about. It's a prequel series that takes place during the 60s and 70s. And it is a film basically about a gang of mobsters. And they're led by uh, Dickie Maltesanti. And it's also from the point of view of Dickie Maltesanti and his nephew, Tony Soprano, who is a young man now played by Michael Gandolfini, who is the son of James Gandolfini, the original actor of the television series. And I gotta say, he's he does a really good job. I think I really enjoyed seeing his performance here. It's like a revelation. It's one of those things where it's like really good. I do want to say, though, that if there's anything that's like my least favorite part of it, it has to be Tony Soprano. Like himself in this movie is not the most interesting part. But you know what? I, I think that overall, it's a good movie. It's certainly like... How do I put it this way? It's certainly like restricted a little bit by the fact that it has to be a Sopranos movie. Like I feel like they couldn't take as many risks with the character of Tony because they have a certain path to go. But it doesn't feel like that. But I can tell that. I guess it doesn't feel like that when you're watching it. But looking back, it's like, okay, I can see why they didn't do this with this character. I can see why this character did that. And so, you know, there's that. And also... I, I thought the actors that they chose to sort of play the characters from the TV series fit really well. Like, I think Vera Farmiga's playing, uh, she plays Tony Soprano's mom, who, if you remember from the TV series, is one of the most evil, narcissistic characters. And, you know, the original actress died, which was unfortunate. But, you know, it was one of those things where the original actress had passed away and died and it's a tragedy because that character is like really a really powerful character in the original series but she was also like pretty darn evil and horrible and so you can see a little bit of that in her performance but you can kind of see why tony still had her stick was still around her and still like stuck around even though she was not a good person and i like the fact that we see tony you know we see hinges of who the person he'll become but it wasn't like in your face you know like it always felt like he was his own 
you can see this character being the character that will be in the TV series, which I think was great. But I do think he was the least interesting part. I like the mob stuff. I think that the stuff about that is well written. And in the ending, it, again, if you have never seen the TV series, it does wrap itself up pretty well towards the end. And you can kind of like feel like it's a complete movie. But I do recommend that you watch the TV series or at least have a familiarity with it in order to watch this. But again, should you watch it on HBO Max or in theaters? You know, because it's on both. I would say either one is fine. I think that you'll get a good experience out of it. If you're a Sopranos fan, you should see this on the big screen. It's a beautiful looking movie. It's cinematic and it really does merit the push to the big screen. And if you've never seen it before, either one is fine with me. I think it's a good movie. Hey, stay tuned. We're going to talk about Marvel news because we have a lot of news relating to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So stay tuned. If you love motion pictures, you've made it to the screening room on time. Radio 111 presents Flicks and Picks with Brian Mendoza. So when I said earlier we're going to talk about Marvel news instead of movie news, it's because, quite frankly, all the movie news lately has been about Marvel, so we might as well just be honest about that. So, as you may have heard, and I wasn't here, my show wasn't on when this first started, but I am glad I'm here at the end of it. Scarlett Johansson had sued Disney for breach of contract when they decided to release the film Black Widow, which came out a um, couple months ago. Not too, It's actually been further away than I remembered it being. And because it was placed on Disney Plus as part of the Premier Access um, option, which, you know, again, if you remember, it is a extra $30, extra $30 on top of your streaming service in order to be to be able to see like movies like it and various other movies like Mulan which was the first way to get it and you'll get to see these at home instead of like going to the movie theater and seeing them and the problem was that Scarlett Johansson felt that because they did that it actually impacted her salary because the fact is that she felt that she that it was a breach of contract because she was under the impression that the film itself would only only be shown in theaters that it would only be a theatrical release and that the disney plus edition actually just uh hurt her ability to earn money on there and like looking back at the numbers like i can kind of see why because it, it wasn't close to making a billion dollars and plus a lot of people you know let's be honest we're not going to pay the 30 dollars but they were going to wait for disney plus to actually release the the film in the well, because it's like, I think this month, actually, in October, this month of October, they're going to release it for free. So when you see it on there, you could be actually, you could actually finally see it without having to pay the extra $30. So, you know, I've met people who did that. And so there is that. And the thing about Disney Plus is that, you know, the, the fact is that you can actually easily record if people went to go see, uh, picked to go see Black Widow on Disney Plus because you actually have to pay the extra money so you can be able to figure out the financial situation a little bit better and I think that's actually a really great thing to do and you know great thing to actually like be able to record but the real the the problem with it is that it is one of those films it's one of those situations where like again Scarlett Johansson got the impression that the movie would make a billion dollars at the box office because of the fact that 
all the other Marvel movies that have come out have made a billion dollars. And because she has been there for quite a long time, she feels that she could do that. And I don't blame her for for thinking so. And I do think that there is some value to the fact that she does feel like she got underpaid. And so the Disney company actually wanted to countersue her by saying, you know what, it's not right for you to do that. And so... You know, we released this during the pandemic. We couldn't push this movie any further and we had to put it on Disney Plus because the fact is that the pandemic was not easing up. And so, you know, you we have to do this. And so, like, the fact is that both sides were fighting and arguing throughout the press and throughout publicity, uh, statement, uh, public statements and all that, being able to um, they, they just were having such a rough time with each other the disney scarlett johansson relationship had really scarred itself up and so you know they there's that fight and we'll leave it at that and now it's been settled by the fact that scarlett johansson will be reportedly i'm not saying that this is confirmed will be making will be making about 40 million dollars extra in a settlement that disney has reached with her so now scarlett johansson has essentially won some extra money because well you know it was more about the fact that she wanted to she felt that she was obligated to more money which you know it's fine because i do think that there is some value in the fact that they did violate her contract because it was a violation because they did tell her you know what it's going to be only in theaters and then they put it on disney plus and i know that they wanted to give her some extra money but i think that it's one of those things where if her if her contract says she makes a certain amount of money and theatrical releases then it does make sense that they have to compensate her a little bit for the streaming service because i do think that let's say um patty jenkins and gal gadot you know they got a a small percentage a small amount of money relative relatively speaking for movies i'm not saying that small amount of money in general but it, they did get like a couple million dollars comparatively speak small again comparative to if they actually released a film in theaters for wonder woman 1984 being released on hbo max you know f- at no extra cost and in the case of this film with disney they you know, they, they actually tried to, like, reason with her saying, hey, we can give you some extra money. Or at least that's apparently how it went down. Or the other case where, like, Scarlett Johansson said, no, we have to get, I, des- I think we deserve a little bit more money. And so apparently they wanted, like, $80 million, but they weren't expecting $80 million, And they were expecting, like, a, another offer, a counter offer that maybe she would have taken. But they never came back with it. So that's why she sued. And... In terms of like, in terms of like her relationship with Disney, it seems that it's starting to look good again, because she's finally going to star in the Tower of Terror again. Which the idea was that if she sued Disney, a lot of people suspected that she wasn't going to be in it, and you know that makes sense. You know, you don't really want to be, you don't really. I guess like logically speaking, if you sued your employer, your employer wouldn't want you around. Which you know, it's kind of one of those things where I sometimes would think. Well, wouldn't your employer respect you more for actually fighting back against them? I, I guess if we live in an ideal world, maybe. But this, but the Disney Scarlett Johansson relationship has fits, fixed itself, and so you know she's going to be making that extra money, and she's going to also be able to star in a movie. So ultimately, she won. And I got to be honest, I think I'm okay with that. I'm actually, I think that's actually a good conclusion because again, the reason why I am on Scarlett Johansson's side is the fact that like a lot of like you know actors and actresses and performers 
are going to get screwed a little bit by streaming services because the fact is that like they wouldn't be able to tell how many people watch something watch something on their streaming service or signed up for a streaming service specifically for that so for example like Netflix kind of calculates this just a tiny bit. They try to see like how many new subscriptions they can get out of a TV show being on. So like, let's say Corporate Kai came on their network. So they're trying to see like if anybody from YouTube Red or when it was called YouTube Red, I think it's now YouTube Plus or something. How many of those people went over to, you know, Netflix to go watch Corporate Kai. And every time Netflix acquires a new TV series, they try to see like, oh, who can we bring over from another streaming service over to here so there's that and i can kind of see how like a lot of like talent would feel like they're being underrepresented or underpaid because let's be honest they don't get to make as much they don't really get to make money off of streaming services a lot of times streaming services are not the big money makers for like artists but like producers because they can put out this they can actually calculate with producers it's kind of weird because like they they can figure out the money for producers because again they pay them in advance and that's it versus let's say residuals because you can't really pay people every time like someone clicks on like a tv show on netflix so for example every time you watch house of cards they're not really calculating like whether or not you know uh, Robin Wright will make any money off of that. They're not really calculating if you are watching it and how much money she deserves to get. Basically, she got a payment and a salary up front, and that's it. And I think in the case of Scarlett Johansson, she felt that, you know what, I, I deserved a little bit more because, you know, I definitely, you know, this movie would have been, would have made more money during the pandemic. And I'm one of those people that I kind of don't know if I would believe that. I just think that, but I think the principle still matters. The idea that, you know, your boss can make so much money off of a movie and you, you know, get kind of cheated out of a, out of a amount of money that you rightfully deserve. And I think that's actually like what I think happened. That's what I personally think Scarlett Johansson feels happened to her. And I think that that actually did happen to her. I think she got screwed over for an amount of money that she did deserve. And I know that it's one of those things where it's like, well, they're both rich. So, you know no hard feelings and i and i agree you know and the same with like how the marvel company has to now like again fight the uh, it's uh, fight for the rights of their characters again because like disney recently got into another lawsuit where the families of the creators of the marvel characters want a certain amount of money and again they're not trying to like take away the rights they're just basically saying hey can you pay us and I think Disney's going to try to make, I think Disney should be smart enough to actually give them a one-time payment because that, that would be a smart idea, you know, because these characters are valuable to them. And I think that they do not want to have their Marvel Cinematic Universe tarnished by lawsuits because again, they fought too hard to be able to put all these Marvel characters in one place, especially considering that they bought Fox and they also had to work with Sony. So I'm not surprised that they would have to, again, keep on fighting. And it seems like i don't think these marvel movies are gonna actually like go away but i do think that like for me personally i'm on the side of scarlett johansson i'm also on the side of the families because again i want these families and scarlett johansson to get their money because i think that they do deserve the money they make off of these marvel movies they make too much these marvel movies make too much money to not be able to actually give people what they are what they deserve and especially in my opinion the families of the comic book characters because they don't make as much money off of them people get the impression that like you create a more comic book character you sell it 
and you have all this money for the rest of your life. No, it's like the Superman character where the character was sold by a group of people and then later on their families never saw an inch of that wealth that Superman generated. So that's the thing about Marvel is that, again, they should try to, like, you know, do a settlement for that those families just like how they did with Scarlett Johansson. So, you know, I think that in general, Disney needs to be a little bit more careful and a little bit more thoughtful with how they spend their money and being able to actually value their characters. Because let's be honest, they can make up that money they give away in a lawsuit the next year by just making another billion dollar movie. I think even by the time Black Panther 2 comes out, they'll be able to make up that money. You know that movie's going to make a billion dollars at the box office. Hopefully, I don't know if billion dollar movies are going to be back for a while because of the pandemic, but we'll see. But in positive news, Shang-Chi is the first film since the beginning of the pandemic or pre-pandemic, which is February 2020, (laughs) which seems further away than it really is. Um... It became the first film to cross the $200 million mark at the U.S. box office. So, you know, there's that, you know, there's that positive news. So easily when things get better, you know, and I think they will get better, then obviously Disney's going to make up that money. And so they can be able to actually pay people like Scarlett Johansson and the families the money that they deserve, in my opinion. And I know that some people may say, oh, my God, so how well you know they're not really starving and i know they're not starving they're not starving at all i think i'm not sure so much about the families but i do think the families of these like characters should have some compensation because you know they because their original the original creators always have historically screwed over and artists have been historically screwed over by the comic book industry so you know if you're going to pay them kind of consider it like a residual or reparation for something that the comic book industry should have been better at decades ago and for Scarlett Johansson I'm happy for her because she actually proves that you know you can successfully intimidate your employer to be able to get what you deserve and I'm not saying that you have to do that for everything but it does show that hey you know don't don't let your employer kick you down don't let them kick you down you know like when you feel like you deserve something so i think that's great so good for you scarlett johansson and i'm hoping that the artists families and the other lawsuit at disney do a real are able to be as successful i'm hoping i'll keep in touch with that one and congrats to shang chi the 200 million dollar mark proves that movie theaters and movies may still have a fighting chance and i think they do hey stay tuned we're gonna talk about the adam family too let's see what we have to say about that so stay tuned Big screen blockbuster, little screen stream, festival favorites, award show nominees, winners, and the occasional pan. This is Flicks and Picks on Radio 111. Here's Brian Mendoza. As you can see, I wasn't wrong about the fact that we have three vastly different films and vastly different like release models to represent here. Um, we got to see a film like Venom, which is only in theaters, Venom 2, and then The Many Saints of Newark, which is released on HBO Max and in theaters, but HBO Max, you do not have to pay extra to see it. In this case, we have Family uh, The Addams Family 2. I was going to say Addams Family Values, but that's a better movie. That's actually a good movie. Um, the Addams Family 2, which is 
been released both in theaters but also released at home so you can watch it at home for $19.99 um probably better that way if you actually saw it I think you have better options to be perfectly honest but I think the Adams Family 2 it's one of those movies that I don't I don't know I mean I I know who it's for and it's not for me I am not I've been a fan of the Adams Family for a while. Like I've always loved the television series, and I've always thought the two movies with Raul Julia and Angelica Houston were good. It's particularly that second one, Adams Family. Um, Adams Family Values. That one's actually a really good movie. It's actually really funny. It's one of my favorite comedies. So I saw the Adams Family movie from 2019, which was animated. Not a fan of it. I thought it was cliched and it was a little on the nose. And I thought that, you know, if you're gonna have a fa- a film series about a group of f- a famous uh, Mac uh, macabre like twisted family, I think that the way that the Adams Family movies from the '90s did it was the best way to do it because they just simply they they knew how to do it. I mean, they just knew that the satire wasn't just all oh, I'm miserable and I'm unhappy. The Adams family, they ironically were the happiest family in the entire block because they actually, you know, were themselves and they were open about it and they didn't care. They didn't care. They didn't care. They just let things happen. I don't even think they noticed that people were weirded out. I'm sure, you know, like they they just were happy with being themselves. And so that's what made those movies better and funnier where this time around they just we're always going around saying how miserable they are. They just try to really hard to make so many bad puns, I swear. But um, The Addams Family 2 is a movie about the same macabre, twisted family who then go on a road trip because they just don't feel connected to each other anymore. Or in this case, Gomez Adams, who is the father, feeling not so connected to his daughter, Wednesday Adams, and then this convoluted plot about whether or not Wednesday Adams is really their daughter you can take a guess what the answer was you know you know the answer you just don't want to say it and i can't hear you so but i know what you're thinking so it's like it's a convoluted movie i was watching it i was bored i really was i was bored by it and there's so much stuff that happens with it like you know somebody turns into a squid somebody like raps you know cousin it raps um they go on a road trip where they deal with like cowboys they deal with all sorts of things happening but i'm sitting there bored and i can tell you that i just don't think it was funny no i just honestly i just thought it was a bad movie you know i don't even know if it's any worse or better than the other uh, other adams family movie i think that these two animated adams family movies they're missing the mark and it's simply because they're trying they they try to be like like super they're really generic movies disguising themselves under this gothic aesthetic and i think that that's really like and it's pretty obvious you know like i can tell that they're just like generic wannabe dreamworks movies or illumination movies because the fact is that you know they have this scene where cousin it raps and you might be saying why did i why is that scene standing out to you because it's sort it's cynical like it's a cynical thing and i know that like in the original adam's family movie they had rap songs but they had them at the end of it and they also you know made a point of like sounding a little spooky you know you like in this case the end credits are a little bit more flamboyant so like of course i'm going to notice it more and the fact is that i i just think that like they do these things where like 
I feel like they're trying to be really cool and hip with the kids. But, you know, the, my first thought is like, wh then why are you adapting a property that has been around for a hundred hundreds of year, a hundred years, right? Almost a hundred years. I think maybe even closer to 80 or 90. But like they've had this property that was turned into a because these Adams family were originally cartoons back in the day, way back in the day. And then it became a sitcom in the sixties. Like why would they adapt something so much older if they're trying to be cool with the kids, you know, like the Adams family was never like super, like they have never been part of the zeitgeist because the idea is that they weren't meant to be part of the zeitgeist. You know, the idea is that they're supposed to stand out from everything else. Like the Adams Family TV show was famous for the fact that it had more sexuality than a lot of the other sitcoms at the time. And the Adams Family movies, you know, they tackled the issue of capitalism and consumerism and they've tackled issues like, you know, assimilation pretty well. Like they stand out. So I'm I'm kind of surprised that these two animated Adam's Family movies, you know, they just try to be the same as other ones, but they try to disguise it with a gothic aesthetic. And I think that's pretty insulting, you know, to an audience. So, you know, if you want to see, if you want to see a family friendly movie, there's plenty of other good options out there. You don't have to watch this one, but overall, just to recap real quick, um, Venom is a, Venom 2 is a fun movie, not most intelligent, but fun. The new, uh, the many scenes of New York, I would say is the best film to come out this week and it's a fun it's a good movie it's definitely a good movie a little restricted by the fact that it's a prequel but it's a good movie and then Adam's Family 2 not good bad animated film that I feel children deserve better so there's a recap of all this week's films stay tuned for next week's films here on Radio 111 <music>